from the ACLU. This is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. The U.S. has experienced 233 mass shootings so far this year. Americans are more likely to be killed at the hands of firearms than in vehicles. This years-long gun violence epidemic continues to spark debate about the Second Amendment and who has the right to bear arms. But often absent from the debate around gun violence is the anti-Blackness at its core. In her latest book, The Second, Racing Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, our guest historian Carol Anderson counters the elegiac worship of the Second Amendment by tracing how anti-Blackness determined the very decision to include the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights and has informed its unequal and racist enforcement over the last several hundred years. Anderson is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University. Her previous books include White Rage and the 2018 One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Carol, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. I was reading the book over this last weekend, and my partner and I were watching Batman The Dark Knight, and it suddenly dawned on me while watching the movie that this story would be very different if Batman were a black man. Um, (laughs) And I think that that realization was tremendously informed by having been reading your book all weekend. You know, the fact that the city embraces a masked vigilante seems very much rooted in his whiteness. Um, And I was wondering if this kind of aha moment was maybe part of the point of your book, you know, to make us see not just pop culture, but the real life events we've witnessed over the last years. You know, I'm thinking of the police shootings of Black men asserting their Second Amendment rights in contrast to the sort of easy pass many white men have received from law enforcement. And also the events of January 6th at the Capitol. You know, these events are deeply rooted in who is cast as a threat and who is cast as a protector or a patriot. Was that sort of your intention in writing the book? Actually, it wasn't, but that's what came to be as I started doing the research and the writing and the thinking through. My original point was to figure out whether African Americans actually had Second Amendment rights, which was the question that came after the killing of Philando Castile, who was the black man in Minnesota who had been pulled over by the police. Uh, The police asked to see his ID, Castile following NRA guidelines lets the police officer know, officer, I have a a license to carry weapon with me. And the police officer began shooting and killed Philando Castile, not for brandishing a weapon, not for threatening the police officer, simply for having a weapon. And the NRA was virtually silent in this killing, which then led journalists and pundits to ask, well, don't African-Americans have Second Amendment rights? And I thought, Lord, that's a great question. And I went hunting and ended up back in the 17th century. And that's when I started seeing all of these laws. And I started seeing all of this fear about Black people, the fear of the enslaved, the fear of retribution, the, the architecture that was created to control Black people, to strip them of their rights. It was seeing this disparity, historical disparity over time that really was this kind of aha moment 
for me. And so as I was writing this, I wanted to make that clear, what that disparity looked like in historical time, in real time. And you make very clear in the book that this is not a pro-gun or an anti-gun book at all. It's about the common denominator of anti-Blackness that informs the coverage of the Second Amendment, both historical and present day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because one of the things that became clear to me as I'm doing this research and this writing is that uh, for African-Americans, when they are armed, they are seen as a threat, a threat that must be curtailed. When they are unarmed, they are still a threat, a threat that must be contained and a threat that must be uh, left vulnerable. So it wasn't the guns, the access to the guns that that made a difference in the precarity of Black life. It was anti-Blackness in American society that led to that precarity. And Carol, can you talk about how the Second Amendment came to be included in the Bill of Rights in the first place, because one thing that strikes me is that on its face, it seems very out of step with the sort of loftiness of many of the other rights included in the Bill of Rights. Exactly, exactly. It is an outlier when you think about the Bill of Rights. But what happened was, when you think about it, first we had the Constitutional Convention in 1787. And there you have the South playing hardball with the other delegates, basically going, no, we are not signing on to some kind of United States of America unless we get protection for slavery. And you had the other delegates going, ooh, how do you talk about liberty? with enslaving human beings. And they're like, they're not human beings. Uh, They're our property and we must have protection for our property. Now, it gets real interesting that in our property, then we get the three-fifths clause, which the South insisted upon because they knew that when you're looking at representation in Congress, that when it's on headcount, that the South would always be outnumbered by the likes of a New York, a Pennsylvania, a Massachusetts. And so you get this three-fifths clause as the compromise um, that in fact brings additional representation in Congress to the South. And the South was like, we will walk unless we get what we want. And so then when it comes to the ratification of this constitution, it's moving along smoothly. And then there's big Virginia and Virginia has Patrick Henry and George Mason who are going toe to toe with James Madison. Madison is the architect of the constitution. He's the one who put control of the militia under federal control. And that is because the militia was not really good about stopping a foreign invasion. In fact, sometimes they show up, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they fight, sometimes they take off running. George Washington was beside himself. And so in order to bring some level of effectiveness and efficiency to the militia, Madison had put it under the control of the feds. Well, George Mason and Patrick Henry were apoplectic because the militia was absolutely essential to slave control, to putting down slave revolts. And they're like, you cannot trust the federal government, particularly a federal government that has the likes of Pennsylvania and Massachusetts in there to send down the militia to protect us when the slaves 
have an uprising. We will be left defenseless, is what George Mason said. And Patrick Henry said, you know that the North detests slavery. The bulk of the delegates are up North and the bulk of the slaves are in the South. That is a recipe for our disaster. (laughs) And so they began to threaten to scuttle the Constitution. And what that meant was they were going to advocate for a new constitutional convention. And Madison was afraid that that was a Pandora's box that would undo all of the work of creating a strong central government and hurl the United States back to the unworkable Articles of Confederation. And so they said, we need protection. We need a bill of rights. And so in that first Congress, Madison is drafting a bill of rights, these amendments to curtail federal power. So when you think about it, you get the freedom of speech. You get that there shall be no state-sponsored religion. You've got freedom of the press. You have the right not to be illegally searched and seized. You have the right to a speedy and fair trial. You have the right to not have a cruel and unusual punishment. And then you've got this thing sitting there that says, the right to a well-regulated militia for the security of the state What? That is the bribe, the bribe to the South to not undermine the United States of America and the Constitution. And what's really interesting about how you delineated how the Second Amendment came to be is that this is one of so many examples in U.S. history of these, you called it Faustian compromise or paradoxical compromise made in the name of progress, but at the expense of Black people. You already mentioned the Three-Fifths Clause. There was the Missouri Compromise, which gave the South assurances that free states would not outnumber slave states. I'm also thinking, you know, there was the New Deal establishing wealth for white people, but leaving out Black people to appease the Congressional South. I mean, the list goes on and 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 I was wondering, you know, what does the compromise made here with the Second Amendment tell us about how concessions that further white supremacy or slavery, what they mean for us? And, you know, in thinking about the, the present tense and how compromise and concession works now. Yes, absolutely. So sitting in our Bill of Rights is the right to control Black people, is the right to destroy the rights of Black people. And that is so fundamentally, just inherently wrong. The anti-Blackness that is embedded in the Second Amendment, this right to a well-regulated militia for the security of the state. In fact, it was part of the compromise that emboldened the white supremacists that they could play a game of chicken with the United States of America and America would always blink and be willing to sacrifice its black population for this kind of larger good. And so the role of compromise in American society, I've got to say, it's like right now, the discussions about compromising on voting rights. How do you compromise on a basic right when you're compromising on voting rights? And whose rights are you compromising? Exactly. And you have this language about about 
Well, voter ID isn't that bad. Or it's the recent Supreme Court decision. Well, because minorities don't have a lot of money, they don't have the education, of course it's going to be a disparate burden on them. And so it's those kinds of compromises that, in fact, it's not even a paper cut to American democracy. It is, are these jabs, and we continue to bleed, and then we have these movements to try to stop the bleeding, and then we get this backlash that I talked about in White Rage to to open up those wounds again. I actually also wanted to dig in a little bit deeper on these militias themselves, which are now post the ratification of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights under the protection of federal law. Can you give us examples of how militias were used to ward off the perceived virus of freedom wafting over from France? They were having revolutions. Haiti had a huge slave revolution and our own revolution against the British. You know, how were these militias used to squelch that. So one of the things during the American War for Independence, you had where the Continental Army finally, finally agreed to enlist Black men. Because they had to. Because they had to. I mean, it was the exigencies of war, right? It was that they weren't getting enough white men to, who were willing to enlist. You had the British kicking some USDA grade A prime beef butt. And it was like, where are we going to get the manpower? So you had the Northern colonies guaranteeing emancipation, freedom for the enslaved men who fought for the rebels. And I think that's also a good footnote for many people who don't know that the North had slaves. Yes. Oh my gosh, the North had slaves. All 13 colonies were embedded in this slavery. I mean, even Pennsylvania with the Quakers had slavery. This is foundational to American history and to American society. And it got to the point where you had 5,000 Black men who were enlisted in the Continental Army. It was a fully integrated army. And so they stiffened. They stiffened. And the British went dang and said, "Okay, let's hit the soft underbelly. Let's go south. They were headed to South Carolina. Now, South Carolina, more than half of its population was enslaved. And so South Carolina only had 750 white men available to take on 8,000 British troops. What South Carolina had done was it had assigned the bulk of its white men as the militia to contain and control that black population, to contain that enslaved population that they were absolutely afraid would rise up and either flee to the British who had been promising the enslaved freedom, or that they would rise up and kill the white slave owners. And so they had the bulk of their white men in this war for freedom deployed to contain the freedom of black people. And so when George Washington sends John Lawrence down to South Carolina and Lawrence is pleading with his fellow South Carolinians, you have to arm the enslaved. We are not prepared for what the British are bringing. And South Carolina said, we are horrified that you would even ask this of us. We are alarmed. We're wondering whether this is even a nation worth fighting for. And they began to actually consider surrendering to the British because they would rather take their chances with the British as traitors to the king rather than arm the enslaved. Which says so much about the level of threat that they perceived 
in Black people. Absolutely. And it's retribution, right? It's not just, it's not just what liberty, what the taste of liberty would bring. It's, it's the fear of retribution for the treatment that they were receiving. Exactly. I mean, that's the other component in this. It is the fear, but it is the guilt, the, the kind of, Lord, they're going to do to us what we have done to them. And so that was the role of the militia in the war for independence, in keeping the enslaved down. And what we saw as well with the Haitian Revolution, the Haitian Revolution scared the bejeebers, that's the scholarly term, um, (laughs) out of whites in colonial America. And so when you have the enslaved in Haiti who are taking on the Spanish army, who are taking on the British army, and then who are taking on the French army and winning every time, this is sending shockwaves through white society here in the United States. And winning counter to how the narrative should go in their minds, right? Winning under the name of equality, liberty, justice, but also racial equality. Yes. I mean, that was the thing that Haiti brought to the table, was that this language of freedom was also a language of racial freedom, a language of equality, of racial equality. And what you saw here in the U.S. was this inordinate fear that that idea that Black folks could be free would be infectious, uh, would spread like a contagion among the enslaved Black people here in the United States. And I think this is such an important point because to me, it feels like we are very much seeing strands of this today. You know, I'm thinking of the debates over critical race theory and how when your narrative structure, when everything that you think and you hold true is turned upside down, it is a threat. It is perceived as the ultimate threat. And and I'm curious if, if you in this research saw those connections. Oh, when I was doing this research, it was just stunning to me, the rhymes that were happening here in American society. These rhymes that that insurrections, white insurrections, were basically to be forgiven like they never happened. So it was like looking at the insurrection on January 6th and then having politicians going, ah, you know, they were just tourists. Ah, you know, they were just liberty-loving. Nothing to see here. This reminds me so much of Colfax, Louisiana, where after the Civil War, where there was an election in Louisiana and the white supremacists did not like the results of that election. And so they decided that they were going to storm the courthouse, which was the bastion of democracy in Colfax. And a black militia was assigned to protect the courthouse because whites were going to overturn the results of that election. And as they were doing it, they said, you know, We can be hung for this. This is treason. They knew what they were doing as they were overturning the government. And only a handful of whites said, "Okay, I I, I don't want to get hung for treason. The rest attacked the courthouse and slaughtered that black militia, slaughtered them. There was the Third Enforcement Act that was against white domestic terrorism. And the federal government charged the leaders of the Colfax massacre under the Third Enforcement Act. 
That case goes all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court in the Crookshank decision. And the U.S. Supreme Court rules that the Third Enforcement Act only applies to state actors, not private actors. If I'm remembering correctly, part of the uprising, part of the the white insurrection here, there were government actors, right? There absolutely were. There was a sheriff and there was a judge who were leading that Watching the Supreme Court finesse evidence and ignore reality to write a decision that aligns with their political bearings, um, this is what we see in the Crookshank decision. What that did was to give carte blanche to white domestic terrorism. Louisiana was in political turmoil where you had these white domestic terrorists threatening the government. And threatening a fair election, right? Threatening a fair election, yes. Louisiana wasn't going to step in, so the feds had to step in. And so now you have the U.S. Supreme Court removing the lever that the federal government had to protect Black citizens' right to be, uh, Black citizens' right to vote, to not be terrorized. And I also want to recognize that we are recording this one week after the Supreme Court gutted the Section 2 disparate impact of the Voting Rights Act. But I I do want to speed through the time machine and talk a little bit about the modern era. You know, under the glow of the civil rights movement, we have this groundbreaking legislation with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. Do we finally at that point see a shift in Black gun ownership in how the Second Amendment is applied? So what we see is the ongoing narrative of Black threat. Um, And that's why I moved the story north to California. And here you have massive police brutality raining down on the Black community. Black folks are gunned down. Black folks are arrested. They are beaten. And there is no accountability. So this leads to the rise of the Black Panther Party for self-defense, headed by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. And what they decide to do is to police the police. They know the laws. And California has open carry laws. And so they know the kinds of weapons that they can carry. They know how they have to carry them. And they make sure that they are all licensed. And they know the distance they have to maintain from police officers as police officers are making these arrests. Well, the cops don't like it. This kind of scrutiny is just like, no. Um, And so they keep trying to pull over the Panthers and arrest them, but there are no laws that the Panthers have broken because the Panthers know the law. And so then the Oakland Police Department runs to the state legislature They run to Don Mulford, who is a conservative member in the California legislature. And it's like, you've got to do something. These Panthers, these Panthers, Lord, these Panthers. And Mulford's like, I got your back. And with the help of the NRA, they draft legislation to ban open carry in the state. Now, what they say is, is that this isn't racially targeted. That's what they say out front. But when you look at their letters, it's all about the Panthers. How do we make the Panthers illegal? How do we stop the Panthers? The Panthers are a threat. And so you get the Mulford Act, which Governor Ronald Reagan eagerly signed. And so you get this really interesting configuration of a conservative legislator, the NRA, 
and Republican Governor Ronald Reagan eagerly upholding, eagerly writing for gun control legislation. Right. And this is, of course, in contrast to the NRA reaction to the 1993 Waco siege, where law enforcement raided the compound that belonged to a religious sect on suspicion that they were stockpiling weapons, and law enforcement were shot at. And the NRA had a very different reaction to that. And that was the other thing that drew me into this study. So it wasn't just Philando Castillo's murder, but it was also the NRA's silent response given what it had done at Waco and at Ruby Ridge. At Ruby Ridge, you had basically this right-wing militia that was all about arms, and you had federal officers coming on a federal warrant for holding illegal guns, and law enforcement were shot at, right? And at Waco, again, you had law enforcement being shot at. And the response from Wayne LaPierre of the NRA was to call these federal officers jackbooted government thugs who will like have the right to come into your home and steal your guns. And I mean, it was, he was describing the Gestapo, but you juxtapose that to the willingness to write legislation to ban open carry because the Black Panthers are trying to figure out how to stop the police from beating up and killing Black people who are trying to police the police because there was no accountability in the system. And so you didn't see legislation that was about how do we provide some accountability so that we get good policing in these communities. You didn't see legislation like that. Instead, you saw the legislation that was designed to curtail access to weapons for the Black Panthers. And of course, you know, we enshrined the protection of the militias in the Second Amendment, the militias that were, you know, private citizens squelching revolt, protecting white slave owners. And then you have the Black Panthers who were, you know, defending. It was self-defense. And that had to be legislated out. Yes, that had to be removed because Black people with guns are the threat. Black people are the threat. I mean, that's the thing that I saw coursing through. And so when we move to this modern day era that we're in, that again is where I see the language that we have enshrined in terms of gun rights and in terms of protection and our basic citizenship rights, that those are also anti-Black. So stand your ground, the castle doctrine and open carry. When Black people have those things, do those things, they have crosshairs on them. And I give some key examples and juxtapose that to Kyle Rittenhouse, who was the 17-year-old white teenager who went across state lines with an illegally obtained AR-15 because there was a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, because a Black man, Jacob Blake, had been shot in the back seven times by police. And during this protest, when Kyle Rittenhouse shows up, you have the police officers welcome this teenager with this AR-15. Oh, we really appreciate you guys being out here. Hey, it's hot out here. You want some water? And then Kyle goes on and he shoots down three people, killing two and seriously wounding a third. As he walks back to police with his hands up as if to surrender, 
They don't register threat. This killer goes right by them. And juxtapose that to Tamir Rice, who is the 12-year-old in Cleveland, Ohio, who is playing alone in the park with a toy gun, but it's an open carry state. And the laws say that in an open carry state, as long as you're not threatening anyone, as long as you're not pointing it at anyone, you're fine with open carry. There's nobody else in the park. So he's not a threat. Well, the police roll up and within two seconds, they shoot Tamir Rice down. And they said he was a threat. He was dangerous. They said he was also 20 years old. You know, it's this sort of like infantilization of Kyle Rittenhouse, but adultification of people like Tamir Rice. Exactly. Exactly. You know, we've got a 20 year old black male down shot. And we also see it with the Castle Doctrine. So the Castle Doctrine says that when you're in your home and an intruder comes in, you have the right to self-defense. But let's think about the case of Katherine Johnston, who was the 92-year-old Black grandmother here in Atlanta. And she hears her burglar bars being removed in the middle of the night. And so she grabs her rusty revolver to defend herself because somebody's coming into her house. And as the door breaches open, she fires. And then a fuselage of bullets hit her. It was the cops. And and they said, well, she fired first, so it was justifiable. Now, they didn't announce themselves. They were there on a on a no-knock warrant. The same kind of warrant that got Breonna Taylor killed. Exactly. And you think about the language with Breonna Taylor. Again, somebody, the banging on the door and she's hollering, who is it? Who is it? Not getting a response. And all of the officers have their camcorders off. Her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, gets his licensed gun to defend that house, to defend where they live, to defend that castle. And... When that door bangs open, he shoots and over 30 bullets enter that apartment and five of them plus a projectile hit Breonna Taylor and killed her. And the AG says he shot first. This was justifiable. I mean, that's what happens. And that's what we have to pay attention to, the role of anti-Blackness in this society, in this narrative of thuggifying Black people, in criminalizing carte blanche Black people, and seeing Black people as the threat. So you also think about that insurrection on January 6th. Juxtapose that with the earlier Black Lives Matter march and the massive deployment of federal officers, a heavily armed full riot gear for a peaceful protest march. Juxtapose to whites storming the Capitol, hollering, where's Nancy and hang Mike Pence, uh, basically with their hit list of the government officials that they're going to kill to stop the certification of the electoral college votes, to overturn a free and fair election. But we know if Black folks had stormed that Capitol, it would have been a slaughter. 
I think another piece of this that is is really hard to reconcile is that in the context of the conversation about gun regulation and addressing the mass shootings that this country struggles with, there is conversation about, you know, gun laws that make sense, gun laws that are not backed and, and opposed by the NRA. But, you know, what I found is that those gun laws also disproportionately incarcerate Black people. So, you know, just one statistic is 2018 56% of those convicted of federal firearms violations were Black, and 96% were men. In the context of trying to figure out how to regulate, how to have the discussion about what we do about mass shootings and the problems around guns, what is the solution if every solution seems inherently tinged with racism? I firmly believe that after all of these mass shootings, you think about Sandy Hook, right? And you think about Pulse, and you think about Sutherland, Texas, and Las Vegas. What stops this nation from being able to have viable gun safety laws? And I really believe it is the power of anti-Blackness. It is the same thing that you heard Patrick Henry saying and George Mason in 1788, We will be left defenseless if you take away our guns. The black folks will come up and they will kill us. You hear that from Jonathan Metzl, who wrote Dying for Whiteness, did a fabulous study where he looked at whites in Missouri who had suffered gun violence in the family. He asked about gun safety laws, given that their families had suffered gun violence, and Almost like in chorus, they were like, absolutely not, because those people from St. Louis will come down here and they will try to take everything that we have. And so that fear of blackness, that fear of being left defenseless is what is short circuiting, being able to have real conversations about what real safety and security looks like, about what happens when Black is not the default threat. Do we need to have these many weapons? Do we need to have semi-automatic weapons in the hands of civilians. It's interesting to think about that in light of the fact that the Supreme Court next term is actually hearing a Second Amendment case. And, uh, you know, the last case that they heard, the 2008 D.C. versus Heller case, I don't think race came up very much, certainly not in the decision. And that case, just for context, is the one that affirmed Americans' rights to possess weapons outside of the original militia context. As we think about what the upcoming Supreme Court case will look like, you know, do you have words of wisdom to pass on to the justices who will be making a decision about whether people have a right to carry their weapons outside of the home? It's a New York-based case. Right. And this would require that we had a Supreme Court that really looked at the history and that really looked at the evidence and was grounded in reality. Or a majority that was willing to do that. Wouldn't that be something? Uh, Yeah, I feel like, oh, wouldn't it be nice? (laughs) It is to really think through what real safety and real security looks like and to ask the question, Is safety in New York City about having everybody strapped on the subway? (laughs) Um, Everybody strapped, carrying on the sidewalk, driving those cars in that wall-to-wall traffic, on the buses, in our office buildings. Is that real safety and security? Saying, I'm afraid 
That is what leads to the kind of stand your ground stats that where when whites kill blacks, they're 10 times more likely to walk with justifiable homicide than when blacks kill whites. When black is the default threat in American society, it creates this massive, fatally unequal America. Well, on that note, hopefully the justices get word of of this and hopefully read your book. I, I really hope the decision reflects some of what you've put into the world. So appreciative of you. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation, Molly. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more about systemic racism, check out our Systemic Equality campaign on ACLU.org. It lays out the ACLU's racial justice agenda to address America's legacy of racism and systemic discrimination. And as always, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.